Well, we got through another election week. That's the good news. The bad news is there's still one more coming up this year. Um, that's part of the bad news. The other bad news is that um, it really never ends, right? You're going to get robocalls forever. I mean, just get used to it. Um, so there's going to be robocalls. There's going to be television ads. Um, I don't watch TV myself, but I see it at the gym. And I know we're supposed to call Lisa Murkowski, but I have the sound off, so I'm not sure what about. Um, so so uh, we're supposed to call her about something. And um, I mainly watch YouTube. And so I, I know that there are um, outside interests that are doing something in Alaska. But um, I hit skip as soon as there's a little countdown, you know, five, four, three, two. And then you can hit skip. And so I don't know what those uh, nefarious outside interests are doing. Um, my guess is it has something to do with um, with salmon, um, and uh, because doesn't everything. Um, and um, but 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 I've avoided I've avoided learning because because I just don't want to have my ideas challenged. Right? I've got I've got a perfectly good set of ideas in my head, and why should I let anybody challenge them? You know? Do, do you ever feel that way? Am, am I alone? Am I the only one who just I'm comfortable with the set of ideas I've got, and I really don't thank people for challenging my preconceived notions. I mean, I mean, I, my guess is I'm not alone. In fact, um, my guess is that some of you have blocked someone on social media because you just had enough of their notions, and you like your own notions very much, and just don't need to hear any more. Some of you maybe screen your calls or have, have can remember a time when you were screening your calls because you didn't want to talk to that person. You just, you know, I'll, I'll take a message and then I'll lose the message and that'll be perfectly fine. So I think that there's a natural tendency. In fact, I know that there's a natural tendency for us to avoid dealing with things that would cause us to to rearrange our mental furniture. Um, scientists call it cognitive dissonance. And what it means is, is I've got a framework in my head, and if you give me too many facts, I may have to change my, my framework. And that's... Um, Alberta's here. Ha- happy anniversary. Um, <laughs> um, uh, so if I get too many facts in my head, I'll have to rearrange my, my mental furniture, and I don't like doing that. You know, and, and the, the worst thing is the... the the more foundational those facts are, the, my, my framework is, the, the place where those facts challenge my framework makes it even more painful. So if you tell me, you know, I always thought that all birds had yellow beaks, right? Okay, well, that's new information, and it's a pretty easy thing for me to accommodate in my, in my mind. But if you tell me something that, that I really had built a lot of my life on, and I'm having to rearrange that, that's extraordinarily painful. And what I will generally do is ignore you or do my best to ignore you. I will, I will tune you out to the greatest ability I've got because it's painful to rearrange my life. And I think this is the way most people operate. <clears throat> this is the way, this is the way we're kind of constructed to operate. And, um, um, uh, lately I've been thinking that it's not just you and it's not just me. It's the whole world. I, I've been, I've been thinking that the entire nation is suffering from an acute case of cognitive dissonance. That, that painful feeling that I'm going to have to rearrange my thoughts, and I don't want to do it. So instead of instead of um, instead of listening to you, I'm just going to block you. Or maybe I'll go beyond that. Maybe I'll come right out and tell you to shut up, because I've just had enough of your stuff, right? And I think that's where where our nation's at right now. Um, some of you may recognize these names. Sarah Jung um, is a 
is a writer for, as of a week ago, she's a writer for the New York Times. Uh, she has uh, a big social media presence. Uh, she has uh, tweeted a hundred thousand, 103,000 times in nine years. And people were mining it all this week because, because she has said some very offensive things in the course of those nine years. And so people were, were going through her, her Twitter feed and finding all the offensive things she said. And the reason they did that is because she's a person of the left. And people have memories. And so people on the right said, hey, wait a minute, Roseanne said something offensive on, on Twitter, and she lost her job. And so if Roseanne can lose her job, why not Sarah Jiang too? So there's a, there's a fair amount of payback. If it wasn't for Roseanne, it was probably for Kevin Williamson. Kevin Williamson was a writer for a um, right-wing magazine called National Review, and he was hired by The Atlantic uh, earlier this year, and then people dug through his his uh, accumulated writings. They found some offensive things, and then the Atlantic withdrew their offer of employment to Kevin Williamson. So there's a lot of payback here, and um, I think the nature of of uh, this kind of payback approach is there's no bottom to it. It's like the Balkan War, right? You know, in 1352, our village was attacked by the other people, and and you know we're going to forget that never. So I think that there's just kind of a this this um, I will repay you, I will punish you for the thing you did to my side, and um, and that just goes back and forth, back and forth. So I think a, a fair amount of that is payback, but a lot of it is, you know what, I don't care if they've written anything offensive yet, I just don't want to hear anybody on that side. I don't want to hear anybody who's writing on the left, or I don't want to hear anybody who's writing from a perspective that is on the right. I just don't want to hear your stuff. I've had enough, and I'm not going to let you challenge my conceptual framework. So... Here's my idea. How about shut up? And the problem with that, I mean, that, that's rude. That's not a nice thing to say. Your, your, your mother told you better than that. But, but that's not where it ends. Too often, it goes beyond that. A year ago today was the um, Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. You may remember that. Um, uh, one, it was... Uh, um, a group of alt-right demonstrators uh, got together to, I guess the, technically they were protesting the um, the removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee from the town square or something. But but there was basically a bunch of uh, uh, neo-Nazi skinhead types and 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 uh, uh, useful idiots who who travel with them who got together and uh, there was counter-protests and in the course of all that uh, one um, one man drove his car into a crowd of people. He killed a woman and injured 19 more people, and he'll have a trial in November of this year um, for that that um, first-degree murder is the, is, the, is the thing he's being tried for. I think that there's a place uh, that is right beyond shut up, which is, or if you don't, I will shut you up. I think that this is a spectrum, and it starts with blocking people. And most of us live in that space. But sometimes we're provoked or feel like we're provoked into shut up. And I think at the far extreme, way out there beyond that is, or I'll shut you up. And I, I could point out more about the uh, Unite the Right rally. There's some horrific uh, things that came out of that. I agree with the Virginia governor, go home, shame on you. Um, but this is an equal opportunity offender. It's not just the right. Uh, maybe you saw also this week... Um, uh, the story of the bike lock professor. Um, the bike lock professor, uh, a year ago in Berkeley, 
there, there was a professor, I don't believe at Berkeley, I think at some other college, but I don't know, um, uh, who uh, was, was um, facing charges for having assaulted four people with a bike lock during the demonstrations there. Um, and you can see somebody else there is spraying um, uh, mace or something like that um, against other people. So it was a violent set of confrontations, and it was uh, people on the left, people in the Antifa movement who were doing that. And um, this week... He was the the bike lock professor was um, was uh, sentenced to probation. He's got three years of probation for those assaults, and so he uh, better be nice for at least three years, or they'll really come after him. So, um, so I think that this is a, this is an equal opportunity thing. I don't think it's just politics. Um, you know, I don't think it's one particular political uh, wing. I think it's a it's a thing that that people who are who are extremely upset about something can go from from blocking to to telling you to shut up to trying to make you shut up. I think that this is a spectrum a lot of us a lot of us find ourselves on at different points. And and unfortunately it's not just politics. It's it's all, all places in society. Um, I think it has a lot to do with the Me Too movement. You you've heard about the Me Too phenomenon. There were people who were who suffered sexual harassment, <coughs> sexual um, abuse, and part of the problem was not simply that that they were sexually abused or sexually harassed. It was that there was a culture of people who didn't want to hear about it. That there was a people who knew or, or should have known what was going on, uh, but they didn't want to hear what was being done. There was a, there was a conspiracy of silence to ignore these people's trauma. And I think that that fits in as, as another example, not, not a political example necessarily, but as another example of how our tendency to not want to hear things that upset us can go astray. And of course, that's not just in Hollywood or wherever else you may have think of. That is in churches too. Uh, a couple of days ago, the um, entire board of elders and the pastor at uh, one of the nation's largest churches, I think it's the eighth largest church in America, Willow Creek, um, Willow Creek Community Church in Illinois, they resigned because they have a problem like this of their own. Um, the uh, the pastor there, the the guy on the um, let's see, my right hand, so he's on the right. The guy on the right, he was the pastor there for um, many years. He founded the church in the in the 1970s, and he was accused by some very credible um, uh, people of having uh, been involved in some sexual misconduct. And so he was forced to step down earlier this year, uh, and the two, pe- the other two people, the woman and the other man, um, were his designated successors. Two other pastors who were going to lead the church, and the man resigned on Sunday, and the the woman and the entire board of elders resigned this week. They said we have lost our credibility because we created, we were part of a culture that was unwilling to hear a critique of the former pastor. And they said the only thing we can do is step down and let people who are not a part of this power structure lead the church um, as it conducts the rest of that investigation and as it moves forward. They said we cannot be part of that. We're compromised. And I think they did the right thing by stepping down. And um, and uh, I have to tell you, this broke my heart. Um, I heard about this, um, and uh, the pastor, Bill Hybels, was um, somebody that I admired very much. I think he was doing an enormous amount of good, and um, it broke my heart. And that's why, if you're curious, why a couple of months ago I began adding prominent churches to our prayers of the people. Because, um, you know, pastors sin. You know, talk to my family. Uh, We sin. 
but I cannot imagine what it is like to be a pastor of a, of a large and prominent church. So it was something that I thought that uh, those of us who, who um, have the good grace to, to not have that challenge um, should do for those who are in that um, more prominent vocation. So, um, so Willow Creek's an example of something that just happened this week. And while we're in a news roundup, I'll mention this. Uh, uh, at the end of July, uh, um, there was new allegations against a Roman Catholic cardinal um, uh, who was, um, who again, there's very credible uh, uh, allegations of sexual misconduct um, earlier in his career. He was one of the people who led the Catholic Church's um, investigation into clergy sexual abuse a decade ago. So, uh, truly a case of the fox guarding the hen house. So, um, this is not something that um, brings me any pleasure to talk about, but this is the world we live in, and it's the church that we live in. That we're a church that sometimes conspires in silence, that we don't want to hear the thing that really needs to be said. And these are just two areas. I think this could be said of all kinds of areas of, of human activity, um, church, uh, politics, and uh, who knows where else. Uh, you can probably uh, fill in the, the blanks there yourself. But the good news, there is good news, is that this is not a new problem. This is who we are as people. It's who we have always been. And that means that there are stories that relate to this in the Bible. So we can learn from the Bible. So what I want to do with the rest of our time is look at an example of something that happened in the Bible that gives us a resource we can we can lean on to, to combat that problem. So I want to look at... Um, um, the story of uh, Thessalonica and Berea. So we are in a series, uh, Greetings from Greece. We're looking at Paul's second missionary journey. And so that's uh, the, the Asia Minor and the Holy Land and uh, Greece. And we're going to focus, uh, as we have been, on that little box there. So I'm going to zoom in on it. And last week we looked at Philippi. This up by the yellow arrow. Um, so we saw uh, ancient Philippi. You can still go there and visit it, or you can even visit it with uh, Google Earth. So we did that, but um, uh, but as we saw last week, Paul had to leave Philippi. He was he was beaten with rods, thrown into a dungeon. And the next morning, they found out he was Roman citizen, so they asked him to leave instead of telling him to leave. Um, but he did leave, so he left Philippi and he traveled across uh, the northern Greece, an area called Macedonia, and he came to, as we heard, a town called Amphipolis, um, which uh, is not a very remarkable town, at least from what you can see on Google Earth or what Luke tells us in the scripture. So he went on from there, um, uh, from Amphipolis to Apollonia. And um, again, Apollonia isn't a very remarkable town, as far as you can tell from um, Google Earth. But uh, then he continued across this peninsula uh, to the town of Thessalonica there at the bottom. And so uh, just to kind of recap, he started in Philippi, went to Amphipolis, Apollonia, and wound up in Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a port city. It was the biggest city in um, that region of Greece at the time, that, that district. And so we're going to zoom in on just on that one little area there. So this is the ancient Roman Forum. So you can go today to the place that we just heard about um, where they dragged Jason. So um, Paul, uh, so uh, that's kind of the maps. Um, uh, we'll come back to Thessalonica, but just quickly to finish it up. After he after he left Thessalonica, he went to a town in Berea, and uh, Berea is um, not very remarkable from Google Earth, at least. Um, and uh, so that's the whole journey uh, that he made that we looked at this week, Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea. And then if you look at it on a regular map, it's kind of going sideways that way. So that's that's the uh, that's the the map.
portion of today's today's lesson. So, but we're not interested in the maps, except um, when you've got a hammer, everything looks like Google Earth. So, all right. So, uh, reading now in chapter 17, Paul and Silas traveled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Remember, last week, if you were here, if you weren't, you can listen online. Last week, Paul was in Philippi. There was no there was no synagogue there. There weren't enough Jews to start a synagogue. And the charge that was brought against Paul there was that Paul was introducing new customs, that he was telling Romans that they could get in on this this deal that was available to them now. Um, and um, and that was a, that was why he had to leave town. Ultimately, in the Roman Empire, you weren't allowed to start a new religion. Um, you had to be grandfathered in. So Jews could Jews could worship the Jewish God. Pagans could worship various pagan gods, but uh, you couldn't start a new one. Paul had to leave Philippi because he was introducing a new religion. But here he's come to a town where there is a synagogue. So Paul goes to the synagogue. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. What Paul did is what any Jew would have done. He's traveling. Not many people traveled in those days. Travel was risky. It was expensive. It took time. Not many people traveled. So somebody actually shows up in your town. You might have never left town. Uh, a, a fellow Jew shows up from out of town. He's come from Jerusalem on this long, complicated journey. And you say, what, what's new? What's, what's news in the world of Judaism? And Paul said, I have got so much news. You know, since we were kids, for the last couple of centuries, we have been awaiting God's Messiah. God promised he would send us a king. We've been under the thumb of, of these foreign occupying powers, Persia, Greece, Rome, but God promised he would send us a king. And I have great news. He did. He sent the king. The king has come. He's been revealed. And they said, that's great news. I wonder why we haven't heard of it before. And Paul said, well, I'm here now to tell you. And the best part is when he died on the cross, he reconnected us to God. And they got, whoa, I don't remember anything in the Bible about the Messiah getting crucified on a cross. And so Paul reasoned from the scriptures to, to explain to them, no, no, look, Isaiah, you know, uh, Jeremiah, look at these places in the scripture. You know, it wasn't obvious to me either. I used to persecute the church, but it, it, it clicks. It, it makes sense. You know, I, I understand now how the scriptures have always pointed to what Jesus did. So that's what Paul says. He says he proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus, the crucified Jesus, he is the Messiah. And some of the Jews who listened to him were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with many God-fearing Greek men. We heard about God-fearers last week. Uh, there, were, there were people from that culture who didn't like their gods. Uh, nobody really liked the pagan gods. The, the best thing you could do with Jupiter or Mars was stay off his radar because you did not want to become a plaything of the gods. So you tried to avoid them as much as possible. And they said, I admire those Jews. I mean, there's all kinds of things I dislike about them, but I wish that the stories I heard about Jupiter when I grew up were told of a God that was as loving and faithful as the stories that they heard when they were growing up. And so they became God-fearers. They, they didn't become Jews, but they, but they wished that their God was like the Jewish God. So some of them became persuaded, and with them quite a few prominent women. And some of the Jews became jealous. Now, it doesn't tell us what jealous of. Um, were they jealous that Paul was making converts? I don't know. The, the, the actual Greek word here for jealousy can also be zealous. 
So jealousy is jealousy for something. I want it. It's mine, mine, mine. Zealous is I'm jealous against something. I am, I am, you know, this is not for you. You shouldn't have this. You know, this is none of your, none of your affair. So jealousy, zealous, uh, zealotry, uh, they became zealous. They became jealous. And so they gathered troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. Have you ever found yourself somewhere and you, you kind of said, how did I get here? You know, this wasn't the way I expected this to turn out. Let me give you a tip. If you're down at the marketplace trying to hire some thugs to start a riot, that might be a place to question. You know, maybe maybe I've gone too far. Maybe I'm taking this too far if I'm hiring rioters. Um, that, that might be just kind of a you know, wake-up call at that point and say, I have gone too far down this path. But that's what they did. They hired some people to start a riot in the in the... King James, it says, some base, some base fellows of the lowest sort. They hired them to start a riot. And they attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd, not finding them there. It doesn't say Paul and Silas hid. It just says they weren't found. And, and I'm kind of wondering, you know, where is Paul that he wasn't found? You know, hiding under the table. He's, he's in the backyard, you know, in the shed, hoping no one spots him. I don't know. It just says they didn't find Paul and Silas. So they went downtown. They, they, they dragged Jason to City Hall, uh, that we saw City Hall a minute ago. Um, they went there and they said, this guy is harboring people who are, who are promoting another king, somebody other than Caesar. You need to do something about them. They're harboring people. He says, well, if they're harboring, where are the people they're harboring? Well, they weren't there. So the, the authorities say, well, that's a kind of strange way to harbor people. So I'll tell you what, Jason, you post a bond, and if he's ever found at your house, your bond is forfeit. So Jason does. And that night, Paul sneaks out of town. Uh, he, is, he is snuck out of town. Um, Jason, um, the officials force Jason and the others, the believers, to post bond, and then they release them. And really, this sounds a lot like our world. You know, we've got, I don't know if the rioters are paid, but we've got rioters. Um, we've got people whose, whose attitude is, um, shut up, and if you don't shut up, I'll shut you up. And I see so much of our world reflected in the story of Thessalonica. But the story doesn't end there. Because that night, they're snuck out and they're brought to the city of Berea. So that very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, another town with a Jewish synagogue. They went there and the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. They were more open-minded. In, in uh, the Greek, the word actually means well-born. They were more noble. They were of higher birth. Um, not because of their parenting, but because of what they did. They were of noble birth. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. What made them so? They listened eagerly and they searched the scriptures to see if Paul and Silas were telling the truth. They listened eagerly and they searched the scriptures daily. And I have heard a sermon where the pastor says at this point, this is why you need to read your Bible, people. And absolutely, by all means, read your Bible. I am a fan of Bible reading. Um, but they didn't just read their Bible. They listened eagerly to what Paul said. And when Paul told them about a crucified Messiah, they said, man, that's not the way I remember it. I'm going to go back and check. They listened eagerly to what Paul said. Now they go on from there to, to the, the, they're pursued by Thessalonians and Paul has to escape again. He's taken, um, to Athens. There's this kind of fake out where they pretend they're taking him off to the coast, but instead they take him to, 
to Athens. We'll pick him up in Athens next time. But the question for us is, what does this teach us? What does this teach us? And the, the answer is it teaches us, be like the Bereans. Be more noble. Listen. Just listen. This is extraordinarily hard to do. I don't know how you put up with it every, 30, every week, 30 minutes of me. You know, talk to my family again, you know. <laughs> listening to other people. <laughs> there's one of them waving. Um, <laughs> listening to other people is hard, and particularly if they're challenging your preconceived ideas. It's extraordinarily hard to listen to somebody. So I'm going to tell you how you can do it. This is what they taught me in seminary. I, but never come to me for counseling. I'm not a good counselor. But, but in seminary, you get exposed to it, even if you don't get good at it. So uh, let me tell you what they taught us in seminary. They taught us a type of technique for counseling um, that is formalized by a man named Carl Rogers. Uh, he was a psychologist in the first part of the century, previous century. Carl Rogers, and he's got a technique. But you could also read a, a book like Dale Carnegie's Winning Friends and Influencing People. And here's how you can listen. The, step one is to listen. Right? So, pretty tricky, huh? <clears throat> but after you listen, this is, this is where it gets hard. Okay, listening's hard enough, but it gets really hard there. Then you restate their position. And I don't mean the weak part of their position. Right? You don't pick the one thing that's an obvious hole and state that. I mean, that would be, that would be creating a straw man. Instead of creating a straw man, make the strongest case you can for their position. Don't move forward until they say, yes, that's exactly what I, that's what I mean. That's, that's the way I meant to say it. What you just said is, is even better than what I said. Restate what their position is in a steel man form. And then identify any common ground. See, our temptation at that point is to start saying, but you're wrong about X, Y, and Z. So instead of saying that, say, you know what, I agree with you about A and B and C. And, you know, honestly, I think a lot of people on my side of the argument don't give, don't give enough credit to you because we, we all agree on A and B and C. We totally agree on that. So identify any common ground and then ask about the differences. Notice I did not say talk about the differences. I said ask about the differences. Say, but I am curious, could you say more about X, Y, and Z? Could you, could you unpack what it is you believe about X, Y, and Z? And then this is the, the last step's the hardest. You listen. You know, lather, rinse, repeat. Right? You just keep doing this. And it's hard. It, it, it can feel like dying. And that's a good thing. Because that's what Jesus told us. He said, if any of us want to follow him, to pick up our cross daily and follow him. This is what Christians are called to do. Christians are called to surrender our privileges and our rights for the good of the other. We're called to be peacemakers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. This, this should be what Christians are known for. And somehow in the last 2,000 years, we lost the plot. We, we created orthodoxies that people were not allowed to question there's a, there's a joke that uh, people tell about the Sunday school class. Little Johnny's in the Sunday school class, and the teacher says, All right, children, tell me, what has a long, bushy tail, brown fur, climbs trees, and hides nuts for winter? And there's stone silence for a long, long minute. The kids are looking at each other. 
Nobody has a clue. Finally, finally, little Johnny raises his hand. He says, well, it sounds a lot like a squirrel, but since this is Sunday school, I'm going to play it safe and say Jesus. <laughs> the church... The church is filled with orthodoxies that no one dares to question. And some of them are dangerous, as at Willow Creek or in the Catholic clergy sex abuse scandal. The church should be the safest place in the world to raise your hand and say, I've got a question here. That's not the way, that's, that's really not what I think. I need, I need to, I need to, to listen to you some more, but, but no, that's not, that's not what I think. The church should be the safest place in the world to have an unpopular opinion, to question the orthodoxy, to challenge the patriarchy, to ask the leaders to explain themselves. This is who we are called to be. So, be more noble. Be like the Bereans. Be someone who listens. And let's us, together as a church, be listeners and not shouters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we begin by praying for our nation, um, maybe for our whole world, but certainly for this nation. There is so much strife and dissension, um, and so often, Lord, it turns violent. Help us to be um, countercultural. Help us to lead the way by doing the hard work of listening, by by being a safe place where people can question the orthodoxies, can say, that's not how I see it, Lord. Help us to be that kind of community and help us to live it out in our own lives, in our workplace, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in the church. We pray it all through Christ our Lord. Amen.